Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the second weekend of March 2023. We're just a little over a week from the spring equinox, so daylight is increasing quickly. Nice to see the light in the evenings and with the time change happening this weekend, it uh, will be even lighter in the evenings. We're coming off a little more than a week of dry and cooler than normal temperatures. I personally have enjoyed the sun, but I'm also looking forward to a little bit more warmer temperatures and the rain that'll come with it. There's some things I've been wanting to look at that are currently frozen or buried in the snow. So uh, it has been an interesting late winter here. A lot of alcids. Uh, there was a report of 21 horned puffins, which might be a winter high count for the whole state of Alaska, certainly a local high count for here. So never know what you might be finding out there if you get out. I'd love to hear what you're seeing. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Uh, this week I have in the studio with me Kitty Labounty. It's been a little over a year since the last time, probably, at least a year since the last time we spoke on the radio. Of course, you're familiar to many listeners of Raven Radio for your music show and the garden show. And I guess, you know, it is getting to be the springtime, so maybe I'll just ask straight away, are you doing any garden shows this spring? Well, first of all, I'm going to say hi. Hi, everyone. <laughs> we we have one planned, and that's April 7th, and we're still working out the details for future garden shows. I'm sorry I can't report any more than that, but we are going to be on the air with a garden show on April 7th. I imagine we are also doing some fundraising during that show. Yeah, so, well, it is the, the time of year. I don't know. I've seen crocuses up uh, in some places. Uh, they It has been a little chilly. Things were kind of with the very gray and on the warmer side than average January. And February is kind of more cool, I think, but still very quite gray and not really cold. Uh, it seems like things were getting started. And then this last week or so of, of freezing temperatures at night and just barely at freezing during the day slowed things down a little bit here in terms of spring progressions in plants. But it is getting to be that time. The blueberries will be blooming soon, I imagine. You've been watching the plants on your on your island? Yes, I have been. And actually, I have, speaking of crocuses, I have one crocus that's blooming. And I saw it in bud the other day. And it's in this perfect little spot where there's gravel before it. And there's kind of a larger rock behind it. And I have a fa- south-facing garden. So it was like the perfect little spot for that crocus. The other crocuses are still under snow. So that kind of slows things down. The nice thing about those spring bulbs is they're pretty tough. They seem to be able to deal with, oh, freeze, I'm going to get buried with snow. Great, I'm going to come back out again. I have noticed in the past uh, early blooming crocuses in like February and then we get a March freeze and they just get beat up and they seem to come back the next year. Yeah, it is. I am. I have to admit I'm looking forward to spring. I enjoy the this this time of year and the increasing daylight. The uh, herring seem to be becoming more active. I guess sometime in February, a bunch of them moved in a little closer. There were a lot of whales and uh, shore, uh, not shorebirds, but alcids, seabirds uh, showing up along the road system. There's been more short, short-tailed gulls. Short, short-billed gulls. <laughs> short-billed gulls. Yes, there we go. Um, the the mew gulls. Mew gull was such a nicer name, easier to say. Anyway, you've got the idea, but there have been flocks of those out on the, the south end that um, weren't there all winter. Um, but there's 
still not a ton of birds out on my end. Yeah, I think it seems like they. it really depends on where the food is. There are birds around. Longline season hasn't started yet, or maybe it's just starting. They haven't taken deliveries yet. The birds haven't started showing up in force in the channel. That'll that'll happen soon. Of course, when the herring start spawning, that'll happen. Uh, that'll bring a bunch of birds to those locations as well. But it is the time of year. I think part of it's just the well. It's getting to be springtime. The lights here. It's time to start looking, and birds are starting to move around. Some of the wintering waterfowl I've noticed this time of year will move between. Like they'll just show up, and I think they were wintering in the area, maybe in a bay south of town or north of town, and they're just kind of moving around, but not really full on migration. The swans actually, I think, do start moving. I think we've already lost a few swans hmm. to head north. Last year at this time, there was only one left. So it depends a little bit on the winter. Uh, the swans seem to move north much earlier in warmer winters and cooler winters. I've seen them stay as late as April. So there are definitely things out there on the move. And um, yeah, temperatures are supposed to warm up a little later this week. And I suspect some plants will respond accordingly. Slowly as things- but surely. Yeah, uh, yeah, the day length probably plays a big, big part in that too. So yes, longer days, um, warmer temperatures, they'll probably will start. The salmonberry buds still look pretty darn small and so do the early blueberries out mm-hmm. of my house. Even though it's south facing, they're not doing anything in a, in a big hurry because I, I had to do a little trimming of some and I brought it in because I like to force them. So, and by forcing, I mean I put the, the shorter cut stems that are going to have flower buds in a vase and eventually they will bloom and they don't look like they were anywhere near close. <laughs> so, they got a ways to go. So, are they, they starting to swell and stuff inside even? They, they haven't been in the house that long. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, so. Just it's a slow process, but when I looked at them outside, you know, to cut them to bring them in, they they weren't doing a whole lot, um, but they they will. So some of us deal with the winter in different ways. Yes, we run away. Right. From parts well, of it. <laughs> well, before we get to that, I do want to mention while we're relatively early on here that um, for the first time in a couple of years, at least three years, maybe there's going to be an in person. Yeah, I think. 20, yeah, I guess it has. 20, <laughs> 20, 20? The winter of 2020 was probably the last live in seminar. Person, oh, my uh, gosh. Natural history seminar. I mean, they're all so. live. Rather, yeah. yeah. So there will be uh, this week. This week on Thursday, March 16th at 7 p.m. at UAS Room 229. Simon Hook will give a talk about his time he very recently spent in Antarctica. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, He's a great photographer. Um, So I'm really looking forward to seeing his pictures and hearing his stories because he also works as a professional naturalist and a professional interpreter. So I expect it to be a really great um, and enjoyable evening. And I'm knocking on wood. It's been a long time since I've used all that equipment. And I'm like, I'm a little nervous because, you know, Zoom just works, right? (laughs) Well, mostly just works. I haven't had the, the trouble with that. So it's like, ooh, I'm going back to something that, you know, I've done for years but it's been a while so i'm hoping people um can come out um over to uas it's i know it's a long ways over the bridge um but hopefully you can do it and i think it'll be a great evening Uh, for regular listeners of my show i was able to speak with simon last month i think it was a couple shows ago Uh, I spoke with him, and and we spent the show mostly talking about his experiences in Antarctica, and it was quite interesting. He saw a lot of stuff he didn't spend. He was only there for part of the season, but 
and even in that that stretch of time, there's a lot to see down there. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing some of his photos of of that and and catching the talk as well. Um, yeah, and I mentioned earlier we had this gray January and February, and I've been kind of thinking, okay, so you know. For other reasons, I was thinking about the seasonal cycles here and the things that that uh, people like to do. And it occurs to me there's kind of two major seasons when people are like, I got to get out of here. One of them is October because mm-hmm. it's like it's actually still fall in sunny places. And here it's just like dark and rainy. And the other time is sort of January, February, where it's like, is winter ever going to end? I'm ready for some sunshine. You know, it's been dark here. And so you had a chance to get out of town a little bit south. Uh, I did. I did. In February. I did this twice, actually. I did it once in December, um, December, January. I was gone for three weeks, um, kind of reconnecting with my, my Oregonian roots, which was super fun. Um, also less rainy, although we had a, a good old-fashioned storm on, you know, the day after Christmas in Seaside. So, you know, it, it wasn't like the dry vacation, but it was different. It was fun seeing the different birds down there, and there were a few plants out, and you know, petting the, the dug firs and things like that that I hadn't seen for a while. But most recently, I got to go to Joshua Tree um, in California. And that was glorious. <laughs> so California's been in the news this year because yes. of lots of rain and lots of snow in the mountains. But- so, by by some ridiculous chance of fate, um, I managed to go between two sets of storms. Um, so there's a storm not too long before it, um, and then one not too long after I got back, or we got back. My daughter went with me. Um, so we were pretty lucky. It's not Joshua Tree is a really interesting national park. Um, it's it's actually it's in the Mojave Desert, but but areas it has two kind of distinct regions to it. There's the kind of more northern. I'm going to call it northern part of the park, but you know my cardinal my directions might be a little bit off on that. Um, and then there's the southern end of the park, and they're they're different. The northern end of the park is cooler. And it has Joshua trees like all over it, and they're fantastic. And then the southern part of the park is is more like what people probably tend to expect of deserts. Um, it has lots of leguminous shrubs. I'm sure that's exactly what people think of when they think of deserts. There's cactus, um, and there's lots of spring flowers coming through. So it, it's it's more open. There's lots of creosote bush. Um, warmer. It's definitely warmer. And the north end of the park is cooler. So it wasn't hot when we were there by any means. Um, it was sunny. <laughs> so is the temperature, you know, in the north, we're like, oh, it's cold. of course it's colder in the north, but that's not that far. So is that more a- altitude driven? It's a, there's a little bit of an elevation gradient too. Yeah. When you're, when you drive from one end of the park and I, I should know what it is, but I don't, um, it's definitely an, an elevation gradient as well. But, you know, where we were staying in Yucca Valley, it was, you know, in the, the mid, mid to lower thirties at night. And then during the day, you know, it got up to 50s and 60s. So it wasn't it wasn't hot by any means, um, which is kind of what I expected. Um, but I spent a lot of time in Joshua Tree when I was in graduate school. And it was a place I haven't been back to for, a, well, a long time. And I really wanted to go back. And it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to kind of escape a little bit of dreariness that was going on. And and since I, I can teach from basically anywhere that I have good solid internet access 
um, it works out for me. And so I took advantage of it. Um, gosh, it's a gorgeous place. Um, and I had forgotten um, some of the differences in plants and, and birds that were there. You know, it, it had been like over 30 some odd years. I actually, I should, it's probably been more than that, but I don't want to count that high. Um, but it's really interesting. The northern part, besides the, the very iconic Joshua trees, um, there's a species of pine that you see around the big rock formations. There's, you know, evergreen oaks. Um, there's junipers and tree forms. So it's, it's, it looks different, but it's very much a desert. Um, but it was very cool. Um, were spring flowers you mentioned there were spring flowers were they coming up while you were there or was it still a little they early were coming, for them? there were some coming up where, while we were there um, especially down in the southern end but because we were staying um, up on the northern end we didn't get to dive as deep into those but they were definitely coming up but you, there was like this gradient there's a, a place called the, Cho, um, the Chola Garden um, Choya Garden I keep doing that because I know someone named Chola, right? And <laughs> so as we were driving, that's about the mark. And then um, south of that, further down the road, was where you started picking up those spring flowers. Um, and then down at the very, the kind of the last little um, pathway. There's lots of little paths and little walks um, throughout the park. And we stopped at the last one. And um, that's where I probably saw the most of those um, spring flowers that probably did get a good soaking um, a little bit earlier. And that's really what it takes to get those, those plants going again. There's lots of um, annuals that basically the seeds stay dormant until they get enough water and then they, they grow fast. So are they tending to be like, sometimes you see pictures of flowers and if it's just a close up of the flower, you're like, wow, that's amazing. But then it turns out it's like, there's a quarter both. of an inch wide Some or something, you know. Some of them are you know? really tiny. Um, yeah. Probably one of my favorites is this little one called Nama Demissa, and I honestly do, cannot think of it's a common name. But it is. It's really small. You know, it's maybe the, the flowers the size of my thumbnail. Um, but there's lots of them, and they're just a really deep color. And then the other ones that are just absolutely gorgeous are the Phacelias. Um, and they can be the deepest, most amazing blues. Um, and those are a little bit bigger. So there's a variety of, of colors out there and sizes. Um, the, these bladder pod um, legumes were blooming. And they are probably about the size of people are familiar with scotch broom. You know, so it's that large of a plant that was covered with yellow flowers. Um, so it was. There was some some gorgeousness. And were cactuses blooming? No, it's way too early for cactuses. Oh, okay, so they bloom later. They bloom later. They tend in Arizona. I think they bloom in May, and I'm not absolutely sure. I think it's roughly the same time frame in California, but I honestly can't remember. Um, but what was fun about that that lower spot? Well, one, the lower end of the park um, has a really a beautiful palm oasis. So there's native palms in California, which people may not be familiar with. Is there just one species of native palm in North America? Or? No, no. And I, but I don't want to like go too far right. down the, the palm road because um, it's not my area of expertise. Um, but the one that's in California also can be found like in Nevada in a few spots and in Arizona in a few spots and, of course, more abundantly in Baja. Um, but it's Washingtonia filifera, and they are just gorgeous. 
um, and their their whole ecosystems in 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 and of themselves. And actually, the spot in the south end, there's a at the beginning of the trailhead, there's a really nice grove of them um, with also cottonwood trees. So it's a it is a spot where there's water, and the cottonwood trees were just leaving out. Um, but you can do a, a longer hike out to another palm oasis um, down there. There's also a nice one in the north end. Um, but these palm trees are so cool. You know, you're used to seeing palm trees and their their trunks are all kind of like long and skinny and people have trimmed off all the old leaves. Well, in the wild, they have all those old fronds kind of coating the trunk. And there's like an entire ecosystem in in those, you know, it's not a place you would want to stick your hand in unless you had, you know, some very protective gear on um, because there's snakes and who knows what all sorts of insects and scorpions and you name it, it's probably in there. Um, And birds, I saw a bunch of birds actually working it. I saw some cactus wrens actually working them. So they're very cool looking. Um, They do burn periodically. Um, so does it like burn to the death or just no, the, the, the actually, old fronds are burning the older? Yeah. Usually just that they can get a scorch mark scorching on the trunk. But once they're a certain size, they tend to be fairly resistant. Um, the, the palm oasis that you access from the North end of the park, the 49 palms oasis, um, that grove actually had more signs that it had been recently burned. Now, I didn't get out to the farther one in the south this time, but I don't remember seeing fire scars there. But I did see fire scars um, at the the one in the north end. So my when I hear Palm Oasis, I guess my my picture of Palm Oasis is probably formed by Bugs Bunny cartoons. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and so it's like sandy open areas and then there's like a little pool of water and there's a few palms around it. But is that what it's like nope. there? Or So what's it like <laughs> that would be, for, for those of us who, strong who's, negative. Uh, yeah, whose oasis uh, image so is, is maybe the not oasis, accurate? They occur in places where there's like minor faults or, you know, fault might be too big of a word for these, um, where groundwater is more accessible. And usually in that park, they're very rocky. Um, big bouldery kind of rocks with palms kind of stuck around. Um, and I could show you a picture or I could send you a picture and maybe you could post it with the, <laughs> um, but it is super interesting. So it's, no, it's not some open sand there with, um, with, yeah, little bits of water and, and dates. and. <laughs> so the water is in the ground. The There's a the fault ground. which allows water from the uh, aquifer to sort of uh, percolate up a, And there was one spot. It was still early enough in the year that there was still, um, at the 49 Palms one, you could see the, uh, a, a very little bit of water in the creek there. Um, so that was still active. And actually that one is closed during the week. Um, to give the um, the the goats sheep sheep um, a chance to actually use those sites without being constantly inundated by hikers, um, so it's only open to hikers like Friday, Saturday, and Sunday um, to allow those animals to use the the spot. Were there lots of other? people there while you were there oh my goodness yes it's a very popular park um it wasn't it didn't feel like you were like bumping elbows with people all the time but we were never on a trail by ourselves um 
and it was fine. People were friendly and they were, you know, nice and quiet. You know what I mean? There was, it wasn't a problem at all, but it's a very popular park and it's because it's not beastly hot, you know, in February, um, it's a great time to visit. And there are climbers all over the North End. Yeah, oh Joshua Tree gosh. is a is a well known uh, climbing area. I think there's actually some folks from Sitka that went climbing there recently. I would not be surprised. I mean, I I've never seen so many people hiking with those big pads. You know that right? The, they're crash pads. They're crash they're, pads. Yeah. So it was kind of entertaining, um, and it was fun to watch them. Um, and there were people that were you know doing rope climbing as well. So it was it was actually kind of fun to watch. But they're all on the north end of the park near a certain kind of granite. Um, there, you don't see those big boulder formations quite, at least not right on the road system or right near the road, um, further below. But, oh, back to what I was going to say was so interesting besides all the cool trees and the cool plants was the, the lowermost place that we stopped that I was talking about where all the, the little flowers were, we were walking around the trail and, my daughter says to me, hey, there's that, there's a blue bird over there, like a blue colored bird. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's probably a jay. And I was like, wandered on looking at plants. <laughs> then I looked again and I was like, uh, that's a mountain blue bird. Because <laughs> I saw it sitting next to a robin. So there were robins there, too. You know, it's, it's early in the year. So robins and mountain bluebirds were, you know, in this very desert location. And that's not where I typically see those birds. So it was early enough to get those guys there. But we saw probably the bluest mountain bluebird I've ever seen. And there was also some slightly duller ones. But they look quite lovely against those, you know, desert flowers. Um, but that was very funny. I told her to, you know, ignore me most of the time when I make these, oh yeah, that's just a warbler. Oh yeah, that's just a jay. Um, so that was really fun. Um, but the bird that really got me, sorry, I'm all excited about this place because it was super fun, um, was a roadrunner. Um, and I know roadrunners from cartoons. Bugs Bunny, but, uh, so exactly. So the first morning I, I got up at the Airbnb and I looked out in the backyard. Actually, it was a nice spot. It had lots of open space around it up on kind of on this hill. And the yard yard area was actually fairly large. I looked out the back window and I was like, what is that thing? Is that like a chicken? You know, it just looked really funny. It was kind of fluffed up and really dark. I mean, I knew it wasn't a chicken because it had kind of a longer tail, but the angle I was looking at it, it just looked screwy as anything. Um, but it was a definitely a larger bird, and I kind of watched it for a while, and then it finally moved enough. I could see it was a road rider. Um, and I so I got to watch it move around the yard, and... Um, when I got home, I did a little bit more reading about roadrunners and what they do um, in the mornings after those cold nights. I mean, remember, it was like 32 degrees the night before. And so it'll move out into the sun and it will um, basically make its feathers stick up in certain areas. And they have dark skin and they act like little solar collectors. So they warm themselves up in the sun. And so that's why it looked so odd. It was just it had this strange kind of patchy um, pattern of erect feathers. Um, and then as it, you know, kind of got warmer and moved around the yard to the side part of the yard, the feathers kind of smoothed out, you know, it had sufficiently warmed itself, I guess. Um, so that was pretty fun to watch. Um, got to see another one a, a day or so after that. Um, there was a pile of actually white crowned sparrows in the 
in the yard as well. So that was the other thing I was going to say that's fun about going south in the winter. You can see all of our birds. <laughs> they're all down there, um, sensible creatures. And so they're all over the yard feeding. And then all of a sudden they scattered. So I was like, okay, where's the predator? You know, some, something happened out there. And it wasn't a person. Um, and when it, then I saw a roadrunner go screaming through. And roadrunners will eat lizards and snakes and birds and small mammals and whatever it can, you know, capture and kill. Um, so it went running through and then there was a fence on the other end and that roadrunner jumped straight up in the air um, to the top of the fence and then, you know, went flying off the other side. But it, I, it wasn't, it didn't fly off the ground. It just looked like it jumped. And the fence was like four feet, eight inches tall. Um, so that was, that was a super cool roadrunner moment. I was, I was thrilled. <laughs> yeah, uh, probably, I guess, that's like if you want to see roadrunners, that's the kind of country you got to go to, I suppose. It, that's where I've seen them before, and I hadn't seen them that often. So I actually got better looks at roadrunners and their behavior um, this time than I had ever gotten to see. So that was actually super fun. It was super kind of cool learning about that, you know, how they warm themselves up. Um, they're super interesting birds. And I also found out they're related to cuckoos. To cuckoos, hmm. Yes. That I did not know. I, they seem kind of different but you know i guess the genetics t tell stories that the the morphology doesn't always one the article i was reading was was kind of old so who knows where they are now yeah. um but it was interesting talking about how they warm themselves but we did see a lot of other birds you know kind of our summer birds even though obviously they're not the same birds um they're yellow rumped warblers um ruby crown kinglets like the bird i see wherever i go for some reason um that besides um semi-palmated plovers usually in the summer in the winter it's ruby crowns and also near um sorry i'm like talking a mile a minute um near um yucca valley not too far maybe about 10 miles away from it is a place called big morongo canyon preserve and it was a super wonderful place i had no idea it existed and it just is a bunch of little trails um through different habitats there's some vaguely kind of riparian habitat, seasonally riparian habitat, and there's canyon areas, um, there's creosote bush areas, but the birding there was super fun. Um, but yeah, some of the birds we were seeing were, you know, they were birds that we'll see later on. Um, the hermit thrush, that was kind of fun to see a hermit thrush there. The crazy bird that was there was that black and white warbler. Hmm. It was like, that was a lost bird. And I, I was like... And I looked at it, I was like, what the heck is that thing? Because it was acting like a creeper, and I hadn't seen one. If I had seen one, it had been long ago in New York State, and I didn't remember it. But I was like, that doesn't look like a creeper. You know, I can't see that, like, the curved bill, the little bit of a curve in a bill that I would expect to see. The coloration seemed off as well, obviously. <laughs> um, but I thought, well, you know, there can be variation in, in plumage, right? Um, and I'm used to variation in plants, so I just applied it to birds. Um, but it was super cool. I've got a good picture of it and um, got some positive. Yeah, I think you sent it to me. And, I did. And I was like, oh, it looks like a black and white warbler. I just, I didn't know quite why you were sending it to me. And, and but, I thought it was very cool. <laughs> and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I didn't think about it in the moment that that's unusual, but I, I knew that it was unusual on the West Coast. We had one show up here on Castle Hill last fall. I think you weren't in town at the time, but right. uh, 
that's the only reason that I recognized what it was. And at the time, I when I was first seeing it, uh, somebody I was with said, wasn't quite sure what it was and, and said specifically, it's not like at first, when we very first were seeing it, it wasn't quite acting like a creeper. Mm-hmm. And as we watched it more, it definitely was. But he, he said that, oh yeah, those, that they're the warblers that look like, or yeah. behave like creepers. And yeah. that's one of the ways to identify them. Well, it was, it was very clear what it was after, you know, looking at it. And then I went back there, <laughs> like I said, I didn't never heard of it and i was like oh it's so close to us we should go spend a day walking around the trails there and just seeing what's 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 there this is the morongo canyon morongo canyon and there are beautiful cottonwood trees there too i I, i'm a big fan of cottonwood trees and willows how early it was in the year was the cottonwood trees were not budded yet um but there will were catkins on the on the willows down in this particular area um, but yeah, it was just full of, of wintering birds. Um, so that was, that was pretty fun. Um, what else was I going to rattle on about? <laughs> anyway, it was great. I really recommend, um, going there. It's just a really rich experience. It's, it's, I, when I was there, I was like, why are there only three national parks that are named after plants? This is crazy. There should be more, you know, so there's just saguaro, there's Joshua tree and there's redwood. Um, and in so many places, really plants actually help. They, they define the ecosystem. Sorry to be very plant centric, but um, they are, they were pretty wonderful. And yuccas are, I mean, we could rattle on for a whole hour about yuccas, um, but, but I won't. <laughs> you could do you could do a project on it just for your own amusement to look at all the national parks and say what plant would you name them after? <laughs> what is the characteristic plant or plant of association of the park? Yeah. yeah, it was kind of fun. There there'll be a few Sitka spruce parks, I guess. <laughs> yeah, potentially so, I suppose. Yeah. There's uh, uh it reminds me of the there's a, a somebody an artist who has done a whole set of subpar parks and mm. does an illustration of the park and then puts like one of the right. worst Yelp reviews on it. Yes. Just as a, because it's humorous that people are going these places and then their Yelp reviews of one star, you know, too many rocks or something. It's like, yeah. uh, what you went to I could to the- see someone saying, it's really dry there. I don't know. Why would I go there? It's very sparse. You know, those trees are weird. I mean, Joshua Tree is a tree that, um, I think Fremont was the first European-American ex- explorer to, to describe um, Joshua trees. And he thought it was like the ugliest plant, ugliest tree in the vegetative kingdom. <laughs> and so they're a yucca species? They are yucca brevifolia. Okay. So yuccas, I guess in some places people have them as, as yard plants. Yes. I think I saw them in eastern Washington. They they're would, all, they would do all like right. in the East Coast too. But I don't know if they, I don't think they were native there, but um, but they'd use them for landscaping. Yeah. They're they're a very happy landscaping plant in the lots of lots of parts of the country, not here, obviously. Yeah. Um, but they are super interesting plants. And one of the things that makes them interesting is their whole pollination um, syndrome. And yuccas are um, pollinated by moths pretty much exclusively. And it's one of the few pollination things that are actually very, have very close coevolution in that the moth has evolved mouth parts specifically for pollinating these yuccas. And it seems to be fairly limited species by species. Um, and it, so it's, it is kind of a cool relationship. A lot of, I mean, plants are pollinated. They certainly have, have co-evolved with, with insects. Um, 
but usually the insect doesn't evolve special parts <laughs> for this. So it's one of it's one they call like the purposeful or the deliberate um, sort of pollination strategies. There's probably a better word for it than that. But the fig is another example of one where the the relationship between the wasp and pollination of, of figs is actually very closely co-evolved. But anyway, it was it was super interesting, and I kind of wish I'd been there when they were flowering. So it'd be really cool to actually to to kind of watch that. But you'd have to be up at night. But apparently, they really hang out in the flowers, hmm. so you could it would be not that impossible to find them. Yeah, interesting. Well, it's yeah for folks that are joining. I'm speaking with Kitty Labounty today. We've been hearing about your people are like, wait, that doesn't desert. That's not Sitka. <laughs> We've been hearing about your your travels south earlier this uh, earlier in the winter, and yeah, I mean, it's uh, talking about plants. I did wanna I did wanna mention you've been involved with the Alaska Native oh, Plant yes. Society. Oh, Alaska. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, we're we're looking towards the summer as well, and there there are. are Things to see and do here when we have more daylight, which we are getting uh, increasingly uh, of late. And Alaska Native Plant Society, I have had a chance to join a couple of their meetings. I don't know if they've always done them via Zoom or something. I've just never been involved. (laughs) But uh, there has been uh, the opportunity to do that. So I guess it is fashions itself as a statewide organization. So people who are interested in plants could in principle join oh, yeah and, and uh but yeah maybe you can tell folks about yes it. so i'm on the board full disclosure and they only did you know local in-person meetings for a long time but yeah they still styled themselves as the alaska native plant society that served the whole state but their meetings essentially weren't open to the whole state well they were in anchorage to they be were clear. in anchorage yeah. Yeah. and so Good old, you know, COVID did bring some good things. People figured out that there were other ways to actually, you know, make statewide organizations inclusive without people having to buy lots of airplane tickets. Um, so their meetings are, for a while were all online. And now they're they're trying to do more hybrid meetings so that um, people are local that want to go to the meeting live can and live in person. And those of us out of state can still out of state out of town can still join i think i my brain is still in southern california <laughs> um anyway it, the they meet once a month during the you know fall through spring so they don't usually have summer meetings um and they actually do a lot of different hikes in the summer which like mostly are in anchorage and um there's a few in fairbanks we could always organize our own here um well and then they've done some field i mean that's how i met them and right, ma- maybe that's how you trips. met them is they did a, a group of them did a field trip here to sitka i actually met them earlier because one of the other things that this group does and has done is um sponsored workshops so they bring in um experts in certain taxa so they brought in a carex expert and a willow expert and then a lichen they had um brodo or when brodo was up there so i had gone up for a few different workshops and so i met them then then they came down here and then i got to go with them to um Kotzebue into the Kobuk Dunes um, as a a plant-based field trip, which was super fun. Anyway, um, so those are more, you know, obviously those are geared towards um, folks that are in the Anchorage area, the the summer walks. Um, But the meetings are via Zoom, so they're really easy for folks to join. Um, 
and there they, there is a website, and it's if you want to get newsletters. Um, if you want to be a member, it costs you a big $10 a year if you don't want to get your newsletter printed. If you want your newsletter printed, it costs a little bit more because you have to cover the cost of that. Um, but I, I've enjoyed being a member. Um, one of the other things that's that happened last year that will happen again this year is there will be like a statewide bio blitz. Botany bio blitz. A yeah. botany bio blitz. Yeah. So focused on plants. Um and I don't remember the exact dates. I, have, I don't think they've been set yet. I actually asked it to be skewed a little bit from what it was last year, maybe yeah, last a little year bit it was longer. Early July, I believe, first yeah. half of July. Um, so, and I don't know what the final decision is on that. But it's so if you use iNaturalist, um, and you don't have to be a member of the Alaska Native Plant Society, but it's just an interesting way to kind of get a, I don't know, a feel for. Um, plants in the in the in the area in the state and have southeast be represented because um, what is funny being a the southeast kind of board member representative is that you notice that a lot of times when people say things like oh yeah it's all over the state they don't mean all over the state they mean all over the state except for southeast <laughs> <laughs> or or in South Central. Right. And, so and it's like, okay. Interior, yeah. um, so it's nice. I, I I think it's been a really good move that they're um, that they've added, um, well, a, a Southeast representative. In this case, it's me. And there's actually also a Fairbanks representative now that there hasn't been. Well, in the meetings that I've had a chance to watch, or I, I participate a little bit strong, but watch um, – they, you know, their emph- the the meetings tend to be that there's very short business meeting kind of thing at the beginning. Then there's a couple of very usually very short mm-hmm. talks uh, that are tend to be geared towards identification of particular families, I guess, or or genera, or or genera. Uh, this last meeting there was there was one of the a couple of those families were uh, looked at, and then. Uh, and then somebody gave a very short talk just on the plants of Shemya, which is way yes. out to uh, Asia, Cause, basically. Because he actually got to go there. <laughs> yeah, Shemya is a closed island uh, military base. But so, And it was interesting because he was that was mostly focused on pictures and just saying, hey, these are primarily plants of Japan and Siberia, Kamchatka Peninsula, and the only place they occur in North America is like Atu and Shemya kind of yeah. kind of thing. So that was interesting. Some of the talks that are, then they usually have a longer talk, and, and those um, have been a mixed bag in terms of like approachability for the non-specialist, let's put it that way. Um, but you certainly don't, if, if you're an enthusiast of any sort, you know, if, if plants are interesting and to you and, and you enjoy them, there's a lot of gardeners there, I think. And there are some professional botanists, certainly. And lots of non-professional botanists. And uh, many, so, yeah, so people that are just I in it for fun. I have had to teach so. myself not to twitch <laughs> <laughs> very much when people are pronouncing words. So if you're new to botany, don't feel bad because there's plenty of people also on the board that are really enthusiastic about plants and about learning about plants, but they don't have a formal botanical background. So that's an opportunity for folks. If, if you're interested hearing this, you can probably the easiest way is just to Google Alaska Native Plant Society. I think so. I'll include a link when I post this uh, show to my website. But if you are just listening and not seeing it there, then uh, then you can yeah just search for that and it should be, should be findable. And of course, I always encourage people to use iNaturalist. That is something I've I've been lately 
finishing up my 2022 observations. I still have still have some to go, but um, did you? Was there something else on the? Yeah, plant just society? I just wanted to, no, yeah. not in the plant study, but I wanted to say about iNaturalist. But you can finish. Oh your well, thing I was going to say so. So one of the things that's fun about iNaturalist is just sort of like finding these. Uh, I don't benchmarks, not quite the right word, but it's kind of like big round numbers. You're approaching a big round number for Sitka. You're almost at a thousand species for Sitka proper. You have well over a thousand in the state, but. Uh, it's it's just uh, getting close to that nice that nice round number. So what I was going to say, it's also handy about iNaturalist. So when I travel now, I I post things that I see on iNaturalist, um, and it's because I don't know the floras of those other places as well. I might be able to figure out what family it's in, or I might remember the family, or I remember um, the genus, but I don't necessarily know the species. Um, and so iNaturalist is a really good place to kind of store those those photos um, and get some get some schooling, I would say. I actually learned um, a lot about how to differentiate um, the California poppies. There are actually four species of California poppies around Joshua Tree. And some kind person actually said, well, you need a picture of this, this, and this, you know, in order to actually properly tell which species it is. And that was really handy. Um, I could have carried around the flora of California and like slowly peeled through it, but it was um, super nice to get that that little lift. Um, so for you were posting as you were there and and got that feedback fast enough to be able to apply. Yes, it? the next time I saw the poppy, I or another, it was no doubt another species. I was like, okay, I got it, you know, and I took the the pictures that were needed so it could be identified to species. Yeah, um, but it was yeah that was super handy to be able to get that information that fast and to apply it. And the same thing, I had I also posted pictures of birds like that black and white warbler. I was like, am I nuts? Um, and then I learned about the ladder-backed versus nettles woodpecker that way too. So that was kind of cool. It is a mixed bag in terms of how fast you get responses like that. California is one of the sort of hot zones, shall we say, of iNaturalists. There's a lot of uh, active users there, a lot yeah. of folks that are uh, actively identifying as well. Right. So, some other places you go, you wouldn't necessarily get um, such help quite so quickly. No, but, and it depends. Yeah, it depends on the tax of it. There are some really keen, you know, California botanists down there. I mean, the California floor is humongous. <laughs> it's super diverse. It's very cool. Um, but there were some very keen people on those. And the birds is like, as soon as I posted them, somebody... Responded birds. Yeah, birds them. is a taxonomic group. There's uh, yeah, a lot of folks that but are. I, I posted things for Alaska that I was pretty, you know, that I had identifications on um, myself for the interior, and who knows if I'll ever see anyone agree or disagree with them. Um, but that's okay. Actually, you know, I posted things from Greece, and it may have taken a year or two, but I got actual, you know, some responses to um, those plants. So that was kind of fun. It, sometimes it takes a while, um, but it's a way to learn about the floras of other places. Well, and that's one of the nice things that you mentioned the Plant Society is sponsoring this BioBlitz um, for the summer. Last summer it was happening in July. One of the things that does is it helps focus people who have the ability to identify things yes. and they will go ahead and do that. I I like to make a practice of looking at everything in the region that I reasonably know stuff, which is Southeast Alaska. And I look at South Coastal Alaska entirely, but as you get further away from Southeast, there's more and more things that I just, it's not that I couldn't learn them, but it's not, it's not my, they, they don't happen to occur where I'm spending my time. So I haven't really uh, tried to learn them. 
Um, but I've, more than one person has commented that there's a there's a group of us in Southeast Alaska who are pretty consistently putting names on things that we know. Mm-hmm. That is not the case elsewhere, as you've found in Alaska. So the the BioBlitz is a good way. It's nice, and and hopefully over time more people. That's one of the things that's been interesting. Uh, there was a, a a little blog post posted with iNaturalist, and it was a just a just an overview of a group of folks who were identifying a lot of flies. If you've ever posted one mm. of those hoverflies, a flower fly on iNaturalist, then one of them is almost certainly come and put a name on it. Right. Turns out two of them are high school students. Like they just got really interested. One of them, they're brothers, and one of them got interested maybe when he was a senior in high school and then and then kind of a freshman in college and was just like, he wanted to be able, he said, there's people doing birds all over the place, you know, what's something that's approachable but isn't getting a lot of attention. So he mm-hmm. started with these flower flies. And then his brother was bored one time, his younger brother was bored one time when he was home for Christmas or something. He's like, here, why don't you look at these? And so then they really got into it. And then they would email experts and mm-hmm. and because of their, you know, networking with the experts, some of the experts came on. They're not you know, they've got better things to do than spend their time identifying all these right. really common flies. Uh, but then there were some folks that are just interested. They want, again, want to help out and want to learn something. So it's an opportunity where you can, you can, working with another group of people, like working with each other, you you learn to better identify things and you go through and, and they've put literally hundreds of thousands of names on observations that people have made of these flies all over North America. And it's it's been, I mean, I've I've, found it to be very helpful because I post them and I'm like, I don't know, some of these are kind of difficult and I don't really want to dig into the details of them, but these folks are able to do that and it helps me learn what's here. So if folks think that might be interesting, you know, there's nothing that, that says you can't, as a complete amateur, jump in and start learning the stuff and mm-hmm. and um, figuring these things out. And so there's opportunities there, especially in dark winter days, you know, when right. not much else is going on. No, I've, I have found it super, I mean, it's super handy with insects, but I think one of the things I find most satisfying about iNaturalist is when I travel and I'm looking at at plants and I'm like, okay, remember that this is a berberus, you know, a barberry, um, but I'm not up on the latest, you know, classification of them. So I got to learn about that via iNaturalist. And um, the other one was Artemisia's. Um, the sages, there's more sages than I ever learned. You know, I'm, I'm a West Side person. <laughs> They're pretty simple here. Uh, yes, but, Artemisias but, yeah, are very simple here. They're a little more complex as you go into the... The desert sagebrushes, yeah. Yeah, and this was in um, Central Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's fewer there. And as you go into the Great Basin and the Mojave, there's there's more. Um, but, you know, it, it's actually been super satisfying to to learn more about them. And, yeah, I mean, I, I realize I've been waxing on and on about other floras, and they do excite me. I mean, I'm, I'm a botanist. I like plants. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter to me where they're growing. I don't have a, a strong affiliation with any one particular area. But I do like the contrast between southeast Alaska and the, the, the colors of the place, right? And then you go to the, the you know, southwest and the colors are kind of complementary. So those two places have always had, had this strong appeal to me. You've got the blues and the greens and the grays up here and there you've got, okay, <laughs> I am kind of orangey brown and I am yellow and, you know, reds. And, Is that so, a lot of the rocks are kind of the rocks, the rocks weren't super colorful, actually. 
Um, blue sky. Blue sky. The sky was really, really blue. Um, but the yeah, the rocks certainly have color to them. They're not yeah. gray wacky. It's not. It's not like as you get over into kind of the, the sandstone areas of of Utah and so where you got those really right red where rocks you get and, the really bright rocks. This particular yeah. area didn't have that, but you do have areas where you do have pretty colorful rock like the Chiricahuas or something. But I just like the contrast between those two areas and just the contrast in how plants and animals have to live in the in those areas. You know, it, it's very different strategies um, for survival. You know, we hardly have, you know, we, we maybe have one annual plant here, you know, that's wild. Maybe two. <laughs> um, down there, that's a regular lifestyle that fits you know that those ecosystems so again it's just kind of interesting the contrast yeah no that makes sense and i i seem to remember you telling me to change the subject a little bit we were talking about insects and so forth is there is there going to be there was a bug camp run here a few years ago is there going to be another one of those this year yes there will be a bug camp and i think it will also be a family bug camp again um but i'm not absolutely positive and that's through the science center um, and I believe it's early July, and Derek and Melissa Sykes from Fairbanks are going to come down again and teach that. At least that's the plan, as I have heard it most recently. Were you able to do one of their bug camps before? I did one last summer. Oh. It wasn't the same thing that happens at the Science Center, but Derek has taught a, a summer, a short summer course um, for adults. Um, at UAF um, every summer for quite some time and I managed to be there at the right time and and it worked out that I could go and take it so it was super fun and so what's in what's involved like if folks are like mm, well I'm not I, sure maybe it'd be fun, I'm not but... sure what's involved right here so yeah. the better thing to do would be to call the science center um and ask that question or look on the website um, for details about that class. But we got to learn the orders um, and we got to use various tools for catching them and we got to learn how to pin them, Hmm. um, which was (laughs) challenging for the little tiny ones. (laughs) Yeah, some of the insects are quite small. I think some of them, they actually, like, they just have a little piece of paper or something that they yes glue you glue to. the paper to the the pin and then you glue the the little insect to the little piece of paper yeah um so it was I kind of magnify, I, are you doing it under a scope oh yes yeah. i was yeah <laughs> <So> <laughs> scope. some of those some of those beetles especially can be very small oh they were very tiny but it was actually just super fun there's grasshoppers all over um in that part of alaska and it was it was actually fun to hop around chasing grasshoppers like i did when i was a kid Hmm. um so i I took some pleasure in that class nice well so that's something to look forward to for folks that are going to be around in the summertime i'm sure there'll be more advertisements for that yes we do uh we we mentioned earlier on but might as well mention it again there is an in-person natural history seminar that's coming up this Thursday, so that's Thursday the, the 16th. 16th, and that will be at the University of Alaska at here in Sitka. S- at 7. At 7 o'clock. Yes. Simon Hook, who is a guest on the show recently, will be speaking about Antarctica. Does it yes, have a title? Yes, The Wonders of Antarctica. The Wonders of Antarctica. So and I'm it sure will we'll be wonderful. see some pictures of ice and pictures of penguins. and, and Pictures of all sorts of things. Dramatic landscapes. I think we'll get to hear about penguins, but we're also going to hear about other things as well. Yes. Yeah, I I enjoyed speaking to him and, and hearing and he, uh, hearing about his experiences there. He was very enthusiastic about his time there and I think is looking forward to spending some more time down there in the future. 
Uh, it is, it's a long ways. Like, mm-hmm. And I mean, it's a long ways. Like he described going, when you leave the, the, the very south end of South America and head south from there, you know, you're out into the great beyond in, in some respects. For, yeah, yes, yeah. for a while. Yeah. <laughs> We're used to being sort of out on the edge of things here in southeast Alaska, but that takes it that to a whole That is the real other. edge. It's not quite going to the moon, but it probably yeah. felt a little bit like it. <laughs> pretty Pretty far out there, so... So that's fun. Are there any other um, things of that nature that are coming up that you know of? So right now, the other um, natural history talk that I have scheduled is for April 20th. And that's with a visiting scientist at the Science Center. I don't have a title yet or anything. so But I know that one's coming up. I'm trying to arrange another one um, for in between. It's like I have to break into this, you know, in-person stuff, you know, slowly but surely. One, I have to remember, oh, gosh, the room isn't available whenever I want it to be. So (laughs) and looking at the schedules again and making sure I don't overlap with other things. So I'm trying to work out um, another talk as well. All right. So there's things to look forward to. And I imagine they'll be on the community calendar. Yes. Have an opportunity to get on the email list. Get on the email list, yes. If you go to sitkanature.org, there should be a link there on the front page that says Natural History Seminars email list. And you can sign up there or you can just send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com and request to be added. I can add you directly. So, yeah, early on we were talking about the plants and, and things getting started. Springs, I guess it's not really on the slow side. It's 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 we're it's in the, the normal side. Yeah, we're in the time of year where it's it feels like you know, you're ready. So there's that anticipation. And, and in that state of anticipation, it feels like things are a little slow. But one of the things that I wanted to, to mention, and, and you kind of described a little bit of the crocus in your yard, where there's just one that has this perfect little habitat. I was actually up, I uh, walked a little ways, not even all that far up for Stovia Trail a couple of, couple of weeks ago before this, this recent uh, patch of, of weather and found some blueberries that were like the flowers they weren't fully open Mm. but they were out of their buds and one of them looked damaged and i think that had gotten cold enough but it was maybe 400 500 feet up the slope and i think there was just like a little microhabitat there it's a southern exposure and you're not you're you're above kind of the inversion zone is Mm -hmm. my guess i may put some eye buttons out up there because i'm kind of curious about the temperature profile as you go up the hill there but that's one thing that that I find kind of interesting this time of year is when it seems to be, I mean, at least with flowers, you know, you get these little microhabitats where there's things that are especially mm-hmm. early or especially late. And I suppose you probably in, in your yard, broadly speaking, um, I suppose there are places that you know that, oh, this is where they tend to be earlier and, and yep. later. Yeah. No, the, there's the, – I monitor – monitor – air quotes yeah <laughs> um the early blueberries there's a couple of them that tend to flower first and used to be one over on the east side of the house but it's pretty much been eaten alive by a giant rhododendron um so it's a little slower these days um but there's another one that's still getting full sun exposure and that one tends to bloom really early and i'm glad it hasn't bloomed because um, it would not be happy it's got a few more days um before it we end up with blueberry flower happiness. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping it's, it's, it's slow. Yeah. Well, it is a, raises a question for me. It's like, I don't know. I'm mean, clearly plants like that are adapted to weather where they can, they must be able to take a certain amount of frost, but that clearly I've seen right. in the past, the flowers just, they get killed. Well, and it doesn't by, uh, matter freeze. to those plants, whether they produce seeds or not in any given year. 
I suppose right? that's true. They're I mean, in it for the long game, yeah. They're they're right. They live a long time. Um, you know, I haven't seen blueberries spread so much, you know, vegetatively, but they're in there for the long haul. Um, so if you miss a year, eh, whatever. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really matter that much. And we have a lot of plants that have that strategy. Um, more of them that are um, actually vegetatively reproducing on a regular basis. So, yeah, if you lose your flowers one year, it's not really the end of the world um, for for long-lived perennials, and especially long-lived perennials that can reproduce vegetatively. Well, that actually reminds me, I was just, uh, the trees, the seeds of the trees have been falling out oh, uh, yes. recently. I happen to notice ducks, like, Oh, chewing them up? Well, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that's the case. They were on Stargaven Creek, and and they were like going at the surface of the of the stream. And I was like, and when I looked down, I could see there was there was stuff. It was a pretty high tide, and so I think it had come up and probably lifted stuff up off the off the shores of hmm. the of the uh, creek and was drifting down. And I took a picture of of the surface, and there were a number of seeds. I recognize alder and probably spruce, definitely conifer. I'm guessing mm-hmm. spruce. I'm not sure They're I can larger, tell. Larger usually spruce and hemlock apart necessarily, but that's something. This time of year, you look out on the surface of the snow, you'll oh, see all the, sorts of seeds. Yes, I I was forced. I was forced. To pick up a bench and check, I have a little, you know, alder, spruce, hemlock, and actually a, a Rumex germination experiment going on in my window right now. Because <laughs> there are all these seeds on the snow, and I'm always like, well, how much do they, you know, what is kind of a, a germination rate? So I tried to collect enough seeds that, I mean, this obviously is not a publishable study, um, but I have... Gosh, at least I have probably have 35 alder seeds going and easily 25 to 30 um, of the two conifers and then a big pile of the rumax, the dock, mm-hmm. um, just because it, it's a weed in my yard. Actually, this is the weedy one. And I'm curious, well, how much does it actually reproduce? Are, are all those weedy ones showing up from from seeds or are they showing up more from, you know, just vegetative spread underground? Yeah. Well, I've guessed seeds, but I don't know. It'll be interesting to see yeah, what you're. I'm just curious what the germination, germination rate is. Rate is. Did, have you done germination rate kind of things like this before? Oh, yes. I mean, not and not not well. Yeah. Um, just for fun. Just for fun. I, I, I definitely like to pick up the seeds off the snow and see how they germinate. And I've grown the, you know, the alder seedlings actually for quite some time. Um, and they, the uh, they germination rate seemed pretty reasonable, but that's why I like, okay, I know I have this many numbers. I wrote on the Petri dish. I have this many seeds in here and this was the day I started them. So I'm trying to be a little more methodical about this craziness this year. Well, it'd be interesting to hear what your results end up being. It is, uh, yeah, we're through our hour here, anything you want to mention here at the at the very end? I was like, okay, mention all these plants that I wrote down. <laughs> and all of them are, of course, you know, from from California. Um, anyway, it was it was super fun, and I encourage people to travel and look at plants and animals and nature and other places. It it's, it doesn't mean you like those places more than here. It doesn't mean you appreciate them more than here, but the two kind of balance each other and it, it gives you more of the story of the whole of nature and different strategies that plants and animals used in different ecosystems. And for me, it's just part of the, the fun and wonderful story of life. 
yeah, nice to get different perspectives on things. Helps to see our own place with, with new eyes. And yeah, well, thank you for joining me here today. And as always, I'd love to, well, you've been listening. This is a conversation with Kitty LaBounty here and appreciate the time that you've spent with me. And thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com. Or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.